Hi, everybody. Welcome to Emmaus Way. We're going to be talking about fire tonight. I think Ben issued a challenge. If anyone could, if anyone could guess three of the five songs I was going to do, they would get some sort of prize. I would lower that to even one song because this is a really interesting song night. We're going to start with an REM song. Thank you, Mark. Anybody guess that one? No? No? Okay. All right. So, welcome to Amaze Way. My name's Ben. Uh, I'm on staff here along with Mark and Molly and Tim and Rody for the summer. Who's managed to... You're going to be... Yeah, you're doing all sorts of stuff. Um, welcome. 
We are here um, on Pentecost Sunday, having just sort of rounded out an Easter series about realized resurrection and sort of pivoted to the summer last week and wanting to talk about some physical realities of our world and trying to find ways maybe to reintegrate our understanding of how the spiritual and the physical might intersect um, Yeah, in ways that defy some of what we've been led to believe by our faith traditions and Western thought and all those sorts of things. So if you missed that last week, you can catch up on the podcast. I'm sure Tim will catch you a little bit up in the dialogue tonight. But yeah, I've taken the theme of fire, which we will be the first of many such sort of elemental themes one week each through the summer. And it's very fitting, being Pentecost Sunday, that we're talking about fire. And Rhodey was going to do, I think this is a one-time-only community song, given that Pentecost is one week, but Rhodey's going to teach it to us. Uh, how is everyone doing? Good evening. Um, I don't know if y'all, some of y'all are familiar with this. This is a song that's really dear to me. Um, a really good friend of mine from college, his name is Micah Iverson. This song was written by his great-great-grandfather, I think, who was a missionary. His name is Daniel Iverson. Um, so let's sing this song through twice. I'm going to sing it once, and if you know it, please feel free to jump in. If not, I'll sing it once through, and then we can all sing it a second time together. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. happening announcement wise i know we have a can event coming up soon like tomorrow soon one of the tims is going to talk about it I'm... so i'll tell you what it is if you can find the details tomorrow we're meeting with the city council if you're new and don't know dirt can is one of our primary partnerships with mayas way it's a, a grassroots <laughs> yes some point after we do that thing the kids go off Rhoda, you just, like, sung them to sleep. They just sort of, like, they were mesmerized. That was, that was angelic. Yeah. Truly. So, during Candle, quickly, um, 
So CAN is a local grassroots community organizing, nonpartisan group that we work with for all sorts of justice issues here in Durham. One of our major projects has been affordable housing. Um, over the last three years, we have gotten the city to give to us three major properties that we are, um, are developing uh, kind of workforce housing on. Tomorrow, the city council is meeting to approve a couple of those plans. One of the most significant things of those plans is an extra penny per year tax for affordable housing. If you live in Durham, you pay a penny. A penny of your, it's not an extra penny, but a penny that you pay goes to affordable housing. We're going to dedicate two pennies, hopefully next year, which is going to generate $6.9 million for these projects that CAN is doing. So this is a major, major victory for us. Um, there will be at least one of us here, but we're looking for probably one more person who has afternoon flexibility for the city council meeting, because we're going to pack the meeting out. One of the things you can imagine is there is immense pressure on these valuable properties, and the city has gone, is pushed, put in, pushed and pulled by developers, all sorts of things. And so our, our presence is a reminder of the thousands and thousands of people who have organized for this project. So if you're interested in that, you can talk to Tim or me or Molly uh, after the gathering. Uh, we think we'll be about 150 or 250 strong at the council, which will be standing room and people outside the room. But I think Emmaus Way has pledged too, if I remember. I think we got shamed for pledging too, but we, we did. We didn't get shamed. Yeah, <laughs> pretty aggressively shamed. So if we brought five, I mean. That would be awesome. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah, anything other announcement-wise that's going on? I have a... Yes, Brett. When is that? That is tomorrow at 7. Tomorrow at 7. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, I think they're going to be in the workroom, not in the main city council chamber in case, but if anyone gets confused, reach out to me in the end of the service. I'll give you my number. I can make sure you know which room we're in. And one more quick hand thing. The president of Johns Hopkins Hospital... And then university, well, no, university will be down on Friday speaking. This is a big moment for us as well because Hopkins worked with our sister organization in Baltimore to provide over a thousand living wage jobs for returning citizens in Baltimore. Um, we are asking Duke to do the same thing, and so we've got all the powers that be, and Duke will be listening to the, the president of, of Johns Hopkins, as well as um, the leaders who do this project turnaround thing that we do in Baltimore. So another big week. Uh, that should be a huge win for Durham uh, when that comes through as well. So. Thanks for those Durham can updates. Other things besides... So I would say that would be one example of the way in which for our community, like beyond what happens here on Sunday nights, we would say that there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of our life, in fact, even most of our life might happen through the week at, through missional partnerships like Durham Can and small groups at pub group and conversations and what we're individually doing in our vocational lives. We'd see all those things as tying into the fabric of not just what shapes this community, but what shapes this community into God's work in Durham. So, yeah, if you are new-ish, and I see some faces I don't totally recognize tonight, um, there's always out on the front table a yellow card where you can give us some information about you, get on one of our listservs, um, stuff like that. There's always a green card out there with a little bit more information and context about us. It is also a place where we store a metallic bowl, which where we accept gifts to our community. And we just finished, I believe, we're, yeah, the budget year is over. So Dave Teasing should probably update us on that. 
So I'll give you guys just a quick update. You're here two weeks ago for our FSCA meeting, the kind of church business community meeting. We spent a while talking about finances and budget for the upcoming year. Um, our budget ends on May 31st. It's, it's not a kind of an ending on calendar year budget at time period. Um, so this past year, we had set a budget of 108,000 contributions for the full year. Um, and at end of March, so with two months to go, we were, we were around contributions of 77000 so we had quite a, quite a big push to make that up. And uh, the generosity this community always made to me, we came in at contributions of 110000 this past year. Um, so we actually need to set a Tuesday evening, and the time also isn't set. So um, if you're interested, let me know, and we can work it into your schedule. Yes. yes. Wow. Excellent. Um, so, yeah, what else was I going to say? Wow, I just got fascinated by how, yeah, flexible that event was. It's amazing what happens when I don't It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. If you have any ideas about Amazing Way, Molly's open. No. <laughs> That's what I was going to say is that, yeah, off of, off of Dave's thing, two things we'd always say about our budget is that, one, we want to be really transparent about it. So if, that, if you're curious about how that 108, 110, that, that number is breaking down, where that goes, you know, what it's being used for, Dave or any of our finance lead team type people will be happy to talk to you. Um, and then also we always want to be communally driven. And so this thing that happens often at the end of the year where our community sort of leans into the expectation that we set you know, sort of off last year's, we're always setting one year to the next. Like, well, what what seems like a reasonable budget for our community? We're not setting that aspirationally. We're setting that in a sort of what what is the community telling us with their investment where how that budget should be set? So, yeah, thanks for your affirmation and investment in the kind of community that you want to see. Yeah. Now I'm going to turn to, like, Mark and music. And, yeah, so I had said... Can we really, say something about the tote bags real quick, though? Yeah, <laughs> Maybe absolutely. Maybe we should do that. We would hit our budget by January if we had to. <laughs> That's what we, we've been missing that the whole time. Okay. You can talk to Molly. <laughs> Molly's up for ideas today. She's so up, she's, yeah. <laughs> she'll, Strike while the iron is hot. 
You can, you can just contact her and tell her what you want on it. Okay. So, turning to fire again, uh, yeah, Mark, I, I sent out this email to say that, like, yeah, it really is an interesting group of songs, and if any, did anybody, like, anybody guess one of the songs in advance? All right. I said two because I knew he would play an Arcade Fire song. I just knew that. But I, I definitely knew Arcade Fire. There you go. So Brandon and I count as the people that know Mark the best. That <laughs> seems... Yeah, you do. Yeah, I'm on fire. Yeah. It was too easy of a pick. I thought about it, and I was it like, was. no, no yeah. I'm going to do it. Yeah. So, anyways, I want to point to that to say, I, I hope that one of the, there are a couple of big themes for this. And one is, like, we really do think there's something about honing in on the physicality of our understandings of how God's at work in the world and trying to reintegrate some of that dualism that's been birthed into us, Christianly and otherwise, is a great thing. But also, it opens some real, we hope, is creativity through the summer for just being a little bit more lyrical as we try and often be through the summer exploring yeah, some things differently. So I think this would be a great example of that. And I'd also say, like, next week, are you still committed to doing salt next week? So Molly's doing salt next week. And so if you have ideas about songs that have something to do with salt, yeah, reach out to Mark and I, and we'd love to sort of have that conversation be ongoing. But, yeah, thanks, yeah. Mark, for setting this up tonight. Absolutely. Thanks, Ben. You, you said that very well. That, that would have, if I had heard that spiel before I started picking out songs... Who knows, this could have been a different night. No, um, I am, um, can I have just a hair more guitar too, Ben? Um, yeah, I, you know, there are a lot of weeks that I have a master plan um, as sort of the puppeteer with the, with the songs uh, as, to, as to where it's going and why I've chosen each individual song for a very specific purpose. This week is, is not a week like that uh, because we're doing a very different sort of series this summer, this sort of elemental alchemy um, kind of a series of uh, one-offs in certain ways. So what I thought would actually be interesting and useful uh, this week, and we'll see, maybe throughout the summer, is to pull out songs that mention some of the elements and mention some ideas and, and see, how, see how the songs and the art around that might come from different angles and suggest different ideas to us that maybe we weren't thinking about. Uh, let them speak and have their own voice uh, this summer especially. So uh, that's kind of where these songs all sit. I can't say that they have this linear progression of this is where I want to start for the night and where I want to end for the night as much as I think all these songs circle around these set of ideas. And so let's just see what they all have to say um, as, they, as the night progresses. Don't want to hear the noises on TV Don't want the salesman coming after me Don't want to live in my father's house no more I don't want it faster, don't want it free Don't want to show you what they've done to me I don't want to live in my father's house no more Black or blue Don't want to see What they've done to you I don't want to live In my father's house No more Because the tide is high 
and it's right and still And I don't want to see it on my windowsill Don't want to give them my name and address Don't want to see what happens next I don't want to live in my father's house no more father's dead you can't forgive what you can't forget I don't want to live in my father's house no more I don't want to fight in a holy war don't want the salesman knocking at my door I don't want to live in America no more Because the tide is high And it's rising still And I don't want to see it at my windowsill Oh, I don't want to see it at my windowsill I don't want to see it at my windowsill I don't want to see it at my windowsill TV, what have you done to me? Save my soul, set me free, set me free. What have you done to me? I can't breathe, I can't see. World War Three, when are you coming for me? Been kicking up sparks, when you set the flames free. The windows are locked now, so what'll it be? The house on fire, the rising sea Why is the night so still? Why did I take the pill? Because I don't want to see it at my windowsill I don't want to see it at my windowsill I don't want to see it at my windowsill I don't want to see This was Indigo Girls. This is off the Indigo Girls' first album, <clears throat> and uh, I remember, I remember when it came out. I was in, I was actually in, in uh, eighth grade when it came out, and I remember it coming out and just thinking. And I'd already been listening to Simon and Garfunkel a lot at that point in my um, in my folk listening days. And when when Indigo Girls' album came out, I just remember being absolutely floored uh, by what they were doing, both lyrically and harmonically with each other. Um, just really stunned by it. So I thought of this song. It's actually a little bit trickier song phrasing-wise, so I might mess that up. But uh, but it's a great great song. I uh, hope you enjoy this. Blood and fire.
have spent nights with matches and knives leaning over ledges only two flights of cutting my heart burning my soul with nothing left to hold nothing left but blood and fire you have spent nights thinking of me Missing my arms But you needed to leave Leaving my cuts Leaving my burns Hoping I'd learn Blood and fire Are too much for these Restless arms to hold In my nights of desire Are calling me Back to your fold And I'm calling you Calling you From ten thousand miles away Won't you add my fire with your
Before um, we pass the piece, our lead team, um, we've been in conversation as a community with our move to Calvary, um, at least with, within lead team, of what might it look like as our community is changing and um, the demographic and time of service that five o'clock may not um, be the best time for our community anymore. Um, so we are curious as to your thoughts, lead team is, about moving if we were to move the service when we moved to Calvary up to 4 o'clock, if that would make a big difference for people, um, kind of thoughts and opinions. And so Wendy sent a survey monkey on our eWay social. So if you get our eWay social, you can have a link to that. We also have some hard copies. And there will be time to fill this out if you aren't here tonight. We wanted to um, just take some time to fill that out quickly. It will only take like a few minutes. It's very brief. Um, but we would love to have your feedback. And then once you are finished passing out that survey, um, Tim will, will pass the piece, and then Tim will lead us in a remarkable dialogue around fire. And you're probably wondering why we didn't doing, do this during the announcements. Well, Emmaus Way is not always the most prompt congregation, so we wanted to wait until more of you were here. So that's why we're doing it before passing of the piece. But if you would just take a moment, fill it out on, in hard copy, or if you have the email on your phone, fill it out really quickly. Um, and then pass the piece, greet one another that maybe you don't know, and then Tim will take it away. So I don't see Mark, but I'm, you guys can pass this on for me. I will compliment his song choices today. I, in fact, I was laughing. Um, I was in Boston in the 80s, and there was a great, this is back when they still existed, there was a great uh, kind of independent alternative radio station that I listened to, WFNX, and the... Um, the, uh, the disc jockey played a song from the Indigo Girls album. The first album is probably Closer to Fine or something like that. And the DJ was so taken by the song that he just said a profanity. And then he said, uh, I'm going to have to play that again. <laughs> Which is something you would never hear on alternative radio is the, the same song played twice in like one year, much less twice in a row. Uh, but it, was, it, it really caught his attention, the beauty of the song. And what Mark did tonight put us in a space that I hope that we end up on this is the idea, particularly there's a linkage between fire and blood in the scriptures, and it's a very intimate space that's often occupied when the symbol and the reality of fire is present in, in scriptures. So Mark has got us in the right kind of kind of visceral space for the dialogue tonight. So thank you, Mark. You guys can, you, they'll pass on the other half of that to you, Marcus, uh, when, when uh, uh, at the end of the gathering tonight. So let me do a quick rewind. Last Sunday was Memorial Day. So uh, we kind of got the series started. And if, if, if any of you guys watch John Oliver, 
uh, on Sunday night, last week tonight. That's maybe my favorite show on television. So about three weeks ago, maybe one of their last weeks, just like it's happening every day, something incredible happened like 800 times during the week, such that it made it impossible to do a news show without covering what world-threatening event happened on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And so you could see that their staff harried as they are, rewrote the whole show on, on Saturday, right? And so he got on there to start it, and he said, well, here's the show that we would have done had not Donald Trump or whoever threatened the existence of humanity this week, you know? And so he did the review of the show in 90 seconds, and he just talked through it. We would show you a cut, and it had, I think it had penguins involved in it, so the penguins did come out. Uh, but anyway, this is the John Oliver rewind of last week. Um, ben did a good job of getting us into this. But this summer, uh, we have been really interested in getting back to the notion of how key physical created elements in the world relate to our lives of faith. Um, last week, I noted two kind of major philosophies that have dominated a lot of theological and social thought. The first is this idea of physicalism. And all that you need to know about that is physicalism is the assertion that nothing matters in the world except physical things. All meaning is something that is physical. Um, And so the world as it is is not something that we intuit. It's not something that's beyond measure. It's something that we simply discover. And as you can imagine, religious and faithful people have had trouble with physicalism from the get-go because there's this sense that, that people have of whether they call it soul or intuition or spirit or faith, but those things seem to stand beyond what could be measured and stand beyond what one might say is something that's simply physical. So that's been a problem for Christians, and the solution has been a very common philosophy, one that probably many of us, without ever hearing it said, were probably nurtured in this very dramatically, and that is the idea of spirit and body or spirit in the material world being in a radical separation, a a dualism between spirit and body. Um, And there have been many, many thinkers that, like, for example, I mentioned Augustine last week, who had a whole theology that was formed around sexual guilt. And for him, sexuality represented the fallenness of humanity. He even said that all people were born into sin because presumptively their parents were thinking about sex when they were having sex and making them, hence the human sinful impulse, right? And so for Augustine, in his dualism, he created this sense that human beings are souls, spirits literally contesting with their bodies, and their bodies being the location of fallenness and sin. Now push forward another a thousand years and you get to thinkers like Descartes. Um, and he makes the point that the real meaning in life is not the body, it's not the material world, but it's the rational mind, the thinking mind. I think, therefore I am. The thinking person is the essence. So to some degree, salvation shifts from bodies contending with souls or souls contending with bodies to the idea that our minds 
are the location of faith. Our mind is the location of salvation. Those of you who have been kind of part of the Reformation tradition, we've all lived in that, right? We've been taught and taught and taught and taught and Sunday school and Wednesday night prayer meeting. And we've been, because the idea is if we can get our minds right, then all else will be right with us. So that's been typically how Christians have dealt with this idea of the physical world, is to put it in opposition to the spiritual world. And we listed, I will not defend these things, but we listed last week a lot of things that are natural products of a spirit versus material or a spirit versus physical world. Here's a list of things that are easily justified when spirit and body are separated. You can ask me later if you don't catch the house. Colonialism, racism, the hatred of certain bodies, slavery, a radical humanism that says it's all about human beings, environmental catastrophe, or the loss of the created world as a source of hope, salvation, beauty, meaning, and faith. All of those things are in some ways natural products of when you set bodies in the material world against each other or spirits in the material world against each other. said that wrong. So our goal has been really simple this, this summer is we want to reclaim the physical world as a space that informs faith, ethic, worship, mission. Molly and Rody and I, I think we'll be doing most of the dialogues this summer. And one of the things that you'll, I hope I do this well today, but what, what we'll be trying to do is to not look at something like fire as a metaphor. It's obviously a deep biblical image of a lot of things. But what we're interested in is really how its physical presence in the world that we live shapes our theology, it shapes our faith, and shapes our living. So that's kind of where we're going with this. So today I'm actually going to, uh, as we talk about fire, I do want to cite one book that I used that I thought was really helpful. Lauren Winner, who's a friend over at Duke, who teaches at Duke, has a, a book that came out, Rody, when that, like last year maybe or so? Uh, 2014. 2014, called Wearing God. And it looks at physical realities and how they affect faith. So Lauren was uh, thinking about that as well. So here's a question for you. How is fire actualized or experienced by you or others as a reality in our world? How do we experience fire? How is it actualized when you are in the midst of all kinds of flame? What are you experiencing? Hot. Hot, okay. Jay Russ gets right to the, the heart of the matter. Excellent, yeah. Heat. So we're not allowed to talk about metaphors. <laughs> well, I'm more interested in how do we experience fire. A lot of times I've used it like if I like want to write a letter to someone that I don't actually want to give to them, I'll like write it and burn it or like get rid of stuff. All right. There's a purging. We, fire can be a... Pr- How many of us went to camp, right, and wrote some sin down on a piece of paper and burned it up, you know? <laughs> but that's clever. How many... Have you written many letters that you've burned, Jairus? <laughs> so that's excellent purging yeah how else have you experienced fire as a reality it's transfixing to look at you can get lost in it oh my goodness i could stare 
there are very few things I can look at for hours, but I can be literally transfixed by flame because it's unpredictable. It, you, you know, it, you don't know when it surges and when it, yeah, it's amazing. We have a wood, we have a, a wood fire place in our house and we burn a fire almost every winter night. Yeah. I think we, we use it more as a novelty, which is kind of hysterical if you think of most countries for all the time. Like, I, we don't see fire that much. We have, like, we're like, hey, come over, we're on fire. It's like an event for a party, and it's not really because we need to eat or not really because we need to stay warm. It's like a fun novelty. So fire for you marks part of your modern life, that you didn't have to kill something and burn it. It marks part of my modern life. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. That's excellent. Others? And yet, at the same time, every time we turn on our car, there's fire. We just don't see it. We contain it in a very mechanical sort of way. Yeah, so a lot of our industry, the machinations of our lives, have something to do with fire that may not be readily evident to us, but things are burning. Yes, outstanding. There was another right here. It's really dangerous, actually. Yeah, yeah, we were, we were <laughs> a couple of us earlier were talking about life in California, and somebody said, you know, I love California, but I always felt like I was about to get burned. <laughs> so fire is, as many of us probably experienced it, as danger, right? Yeah, I didn't understand why the wildfires happened like they did in California. I grew up here. And I was like, why can't you put it out until I lived there and saw it? And I was just I'm, I'm amazed at why there was not fire constantly. <laughs> I mean, it just, everything just looked like the whole hillside looks like this could catch fire and there's no stopping it at any, at any point. And to go along with like, it's sort of the regeneration of the wildfires, like, where we don't have wildfires for a long time and then we have one, how for a long time Like, it's dangerous, but it's also needed in some sense. So we experience fire as regeneration. Yeah, I've told you a million times, I'm a country boy, and uh, we burned things. We burned garbage. Yikes. Uh, we burned, every night, uh, we burned fields to help them regenerate. My grandfather, who was a stubborn, stubborn man, had illegal fires all the time. And when people would call the fire department, he would because he was an arrogant, stubborn man, go get a hot dog or, a, or a, a, you know, a marshmallow and put it on like this giant fire bigger than... He's like, I'm cooking. <laughs> so that was normal for us, right? Yeah. So danger, anything... Uh, I, I, yeah, Ellen. Um, well, this is sort of on the edge of being esoteric, but I, I experienced fire as a conversion um, from one state to another. And of course, from that, you realize that it's the production of carbon dioxide and it you know, interfaces with all of the ecological problems that we're going to have in the near future that we're starting to have and things like that. So it's conversion. It's sort of alchemy. So, Ellen, I was going to put you on the spot, and now I'm definitely going to do it. <laughs> My next question is, what is fire? What is actual fire? Uh, maybe there's a physicist in the audience that can do our chemist better than mine. It, the way we see it, uh, the way we can experience it, of course, is the conversion of carbon fuels into a different state um, and basically breaking apart the bonds by adding oxygen in and I, I don't think I can explain it very well. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that, I mean, so I have one 
physicist, or no, an Oxford chemist who would say it's a self-sustaining, high-temperature oxidation reaction which releases heat and light. That's what you're saying. It's, it's, a, it's a reaction. Something has been transformed. Interestingly, it's self-sustaining. As long as there's fuel, fire continues. Fuel and oxygen. And oxygen. That's right. Yes. So... We've theologized and philosophized about fire for a long time, right? In Greek mythology, uh, you know, the story of Prometheus, right? He, the, the gods had given fire as gift, had taken it back, and Prometheus stole the fire. And what was his punishment for stealing the fire back? Because it was so significant to human life in Greek mythology that for human beings to have fire, it was a game changer. What was his punishment? He was chained to a rock. Like a liver? I thought it was a liver. Yes. Keenan, I was going to call on you because you know this, right? Yeah. But exactly. Chained to a rock and a, uh, a, like a eagle came and fed on his liver every day. And then his liver grew back for more food tomorrow, right? So that was the... And, and the ancients had lots of thoughts about fire. In fact, the patriarchal society was very, very focused on fire as the, the, what they tended to see it as was the basic element of the universe. It's good that we do this first because they felt like fire gave rise to earth water and air. It was the element that gave those things. It was the primary sustaining force as they understood it because they saw it as a mystery. They would have not understood the chemical reaction as Ellen has explained to us. And, and they explained things that they could not explain. For example, uh, we've talked about this before, but the very, very stark patriarchy of the ancient world was based around the notion of fire. Uh, men were the keepers of heat. Women were known for coldness and wetness in their world. And so men were, and this was the for young men who were part of the elite in Greco-Roman culture, they were, they were sure or they were concerned about not having too much sex. Because actually the sex, as they understood it, expended their vital heat. And their vital heat... Somebody else said something like this about exercise, but the idea that they only had a certain amount of heat, and every time they let some of it out, it never came back. And so their ability to rule the city and rule the children and the women and the people who needed ruling was based on their retaining their sense of vital heat. And they saw that heat from the man's body as the source of life. That was how sharp the patriarchy was of the day. So the ancients, when they talked about fire, they saw it as almost the essence of life. So that will help us as we get to this notion about, about um, God revealing God's self in the notion of fire. And when you think about it, this has happened in the scriptures many times, right? Uh, let's list a few times where God self-reveals. Or does something really significant around fire. Today is Pentecost Sunday, so we're going to look at Acts 2, which is the revelation of God's spirit in tongues of flame or in fire. What are some other, can you think of other instances where God is revealed in flame? Moses in the burning bush. Moses in the burning bush, absolutely. Well, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't get burned up. I don't know if that's... Really yeah, yeah. The covenant of Abraham? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Genesis 15, right? Where they kind of burn things and go in the middle of them. 
Yeah, so covenant making, like these binding arrangements were done with flame. What else? Pillar of fire. The pillar of fire. The people of Israel were led to salvation by not a symbol of fire, but the presence of fire. So you get it in the scriptural narrative. Fire as the revelation of God comes not as peripheral moments, but some of the most dramatical, epoch-making, salvation-making, nation-making, covenant-making realities. And as we read the text today, in many ways, we kind of track the birth of the what we might call the church, the age of the spirit, any, any, any way that people divide before Pentecost and after Pentecost uh, is related to the coming of God's spirit on, uh, in flame. Um, let's look at the text today. You have it with you. And um, if someone would read, uh, Ben, let me steal your copy. I, we were out of these before I got these. Would somebody read verses 1 through 4 of this first When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Perfect. Thanks, Brian. And now, Brian, would you would, because you did it so well, would you pick up the third paragraph, but Peter, starting there. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I have to say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you, Brian. If there's anything there, if there's any text in the Bible that proves that the mimosa had not been invented by, uh, by that time, perhaps that text does so, right? Um, but so as you look at that text, how, how, is God re- how does God's presence Function in this text as revealed by fire. What do we learn about or imagine about the reality of God in this text based on this, this description of fire? Maybe an easy way to ask that is what, what, what aspect of God's character is revealed in this, this moment? Well, as a charismatic Christian. I just teed this one up for you, Brian. This, this was like the week waiting for you. Um, his supernatural power, um, which, you know, unites everybody. Yeah, I was going to ask you that if you didn't say it, is what does the supernatural power do 
And in this case, it is a profound uniting of people who might have been judged as different and religiously judged as different. Yeah, absolutely. What else do we learn about God in this instance? I think I've always thought God is extremely creative. Just in this, I've always, ever since I was little, the divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. And like, just as a little kid, I would imagine like literal tongues on fire, which is kind of weird. But like who, the fact that this was how God chose to bring about the spirit that would unite and bring together and like where within God's self like God decided to create in this way and to um, be ever-present in this way has always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just, I don't think I would have thought to like bring divided tongues as a fire onto yeah. those gathered. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting. There's probably a long riff on this about language that in some way... God, Jesus as God's word and this revelation of something that could be transnational and transethnic and all of these things happening with this powerful, inflamed symbol of language. Yeah. Yeah, oh, sorry. So the last few years I've uh, begun relationships with, with friends who are members of both the Eastern Man and Cherokee Nation and the eternal flame or their, their sort of council fire is the symbol of the whole nation that unites those two, the, the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma and the Eastern Man in North Carolina. And um, gone out to Cherokee a couple times with them. And their explanation of the way that the, the fire works for them is that that's the way they first had council. You know, when you, if, if towns were to gather, you needed fire to be able to meet. Uh, especially at night, especially in, in cold weather tradition or cold weather tradition. So, you know, from that experience, and that's what they still kind of return to in, in terms of how to reassemble themselves after the trail of years and how to make connections across that expanse is, is their connection through the fire. They send various people back to the home and get the fire and bring it back to Cherokee mm-hmm. um, and across to Tennessee and other. So I think that notion that unity comes from the council or from that ability to literally sit around the fire um, is a very uh, personalized, very sort of pragmatic way of thinking about how does fire connect to unity or or nation making. I was hoping somebody was going to pick that up because and I wouldn't I wouldn't have connected it the way you did Brandon but the notion that fire how 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 rare is it that we have a ritual without fire involved in some way form or fashion right but fire has a, a ritualistic reality for us that came from absolute necessity uh, in most cultures where people would have been expected to work all day to survive you couldn't put off uh, getting food, right? And so meeting, gathering, civilization, reading words, learning, all of those things came under the auspices of a campfire, a, a fire in the cabin, uh, meetings would have certainly, or anytime you expected people to travel all day to be somewhere, fire would have been involved in that. And so there's something about the reality of fire that brings us together that I think to all of us, we probably do have memories of experiencing the warmth of fire 
in the midst of the warmth of deep friendship and community. How many times have we sat by a fire and said something that we've not said to someone else or made, made peace in a way that we, we maybe were unable to make before that moment? So that's outstanding. Anything else that you see in this text about the revelation of God's character based on the presence of fire? I see God's commitment to working in and through the world itself, right? With uh, elements of the world that are familiar to us and that make sense to us and God's commitment to working in the physical realm. Um, that all of these things that will come um, in, the, in the revelation of the Lord are coming through uh, blood and fire and smoky mist and sun and darkness and moon and things that we know and things that we see. Mm-hmm. Isn't it true, uh, Rody? I, th- I think you're saying this well. The, the the people of God are actualized physically and materially in fire, rather than the revelation. Maybe you know, God gets a divine RGB protector and flows throws up a a creed on, in the skies, and everybody and, and it shouts, "Write this down!" Right? Everybody will believe this. Uh, that's an entirely different people that are formed that way than people that are formed in the speaking of words and the hearing of words and the representation of languages and cultures and a diversity. Because you know that any time we get religious, the next sentence out of our mouth is who is not religious, who does not look like us, who does not worship like us, who does not fit like us. And so that's our most natural way to form ourselves as worshiping people is in inclusion and in exclusion. But this flamed formation in tongues of the people of God in this stage are an entirely different people than perhaps is even imaginable in that day. Let me um, offer a few things today on this. Is I think the revelation of the person of God in fire, Old Testament and New Testament, the things that you pointed out, the burning bush, this moment at Pentecost, um, covenant making in Genesis 15, uh, the leading of the people of Israel, I think that there's some pretty profound invitations to us as worshipers and as community, and as friends, based on the reality of fire in the text. The first is this. Um, I would have, thank you, Lauren Winter and a few others on this, I would have not thought about this, but, uh, but whoever was talking about the, the attention that fire brings is that I think fire, in the presence of fire, invites us to be profoundly attentive people to realities that we may notice. For example, the rabbis spoke about the burning bush many times. And I don't know what, uh, Emily, this may be something you could replicate for us in, in, the, uh, in the lab, but they, had, they taught that it took five, seven, or ten minutes for a bush to burn. <laughs> I don't know who was burning bushes and, and measuring them, but that was their understanding of that. And so if you're like me and you're looking and you're texting and you're driving and you're cussing out the window and you're listening to music and you're doing all those things, I would never notice a burning bush that was burning but not being consumed. I would just yell out my window, fire, and, and keep going. Um, but the, the reality of that scene is that Moses had to look at the bush and look at the bush 
and look at the bush for some time to observe that it was not being consumed. Um, And to some degree, I think that we are being invited in these texts to watch the world carefully. Watch the physical world carefully. Because we can't act as God's people without doing so. In fact, Yahweh replicates that in the text. Why does Yahweh send Moses to Egypt? I looked at the people and I saw that they were in misery. You get this image that God is is in speaking as prophet there saying, I'm looking at the people, I'm noticing the pain of the people, and I am acting, and I think that we are invited to act on the flip side of that kind of attentiveness. Um, Fire also, in its presence in our world, because I told you we were a, a burning country people, right? We burned things, and we burned grass, and we burned fields, and what inevitably happens when you burn grass and you burn fields and things like that? It happens on about one out of every four or five times. The wind shifts, <laughs> and somebody screams, oh my God, let's get out of here. I mean, you, you're not ever fully in control of fire. Um, and it, when you think about Jesus, how did Jesus respond to highly controlling questions like, what must I do exactly to be saved? He always told a story that turned control on its head, right? He always rejected the notion that we're in control of what's working in this world, what's not working in this world, and that we can some way box God in in such a way that we can pass to the next generation. These are the exact things you must do to be the people of God. That always fails. Jesus seems to reject that out of hand. And the presence of God as fire seems to constantly change our thinking that we are in control of the world. We are in control of the outcomes. If we will just be faithful people, we will experience the blessings of God. Um, How many times have we heard that testimony and how many times have I wanted to raise my hand and say, no, you've experienced the blessings of privilege or the blessings of luck or something else, but let's not give that to God, right? So the sense of living dangerously and out of control and adventurously in the world comes from fire. Another thing that I wanted to mention, how many people know about welding? Anybody know about welding? Okay, you guys help me if I get this wrong. I grew up around welding. My grandfather, my my uncle was the blue-collar wealthy guy in the county and employed like everybody in the county in his steel fabricating plant, and they welded things, rails, I-beams. They made, they made their money. Like if you go to Carowinds in, in Charlotte, every queuing line and every rail and every bit of ornamental metal, um, they made those things. Uh, if you went 30 years ago to the PTL club, you would have seen the same reality. Uh, I was around welders my whole life. I, I can see the sparks, all of those things. Welding, and and by the way, welding was well known to the biblical audience. Herodotus around the 5th century B.C. describes the welding process. So that has happened for a long, long time. But essentially what welding does is it's a sculptural process. I'm reading a definition here that usually with metals or thermoplastics causing fusion 
which is distinct from lower temperature metal joining techniques such as brazing or soldering, which does not melt the base material. In addition to melting the base material, a filler material is typically added to the joint to form a pool of molten material. In other words, what you're welding together is joined together in a, with a molten middle. And, and, the, and the weird thing about welding is that the bond between the two metals is stronger than the metals themselves. That's, that's magic of welding, is that what's holding them together is more powerful than the things that are being held together by the welding. But if you've done welding, and this was my job because I'm skilled labor, um, welding produces slag. There's this kind of puffy, creamy, hardens immediately slag that is made when you weld two things together. And someone has to come by with a hammer and chip that stuff off before you paint an I-beam that's going into a skyscraper or a building. That was my job for four or five summers was the slag chipper in the welding process because they certainly wouldn't have let me do anything else. But there's something profound about this. Jeremiah makes this point in Jeremiah 6. I've made you a tester and a refiner among my people so that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. They are called rejected silver, for the Lord has rejected them. Uh, It basically says God is putting things together, and the wicked are the slag that gets knocked off of the whole thing. There's something about the way the ancients understood fire to understand it as transformative, that you could make things more powerful than what already existed. And there's a strong reminder for us in this that fire is the way God relates to us as a transformer, as something that, and, and how, do you, how many people have that experience where you feel bonded to somebody, somebody in this room? Somebody that you know, somebody that you've experienced that you might say, we're not bonded in bloodline or in marriage or any other thing, but we are connected in a way that I can't imagine this. Fire in many ways is the representation of what God does to build community across difference, such that the bond is greater than the two things that were separate in the beginning. And the last thing I'll say about fire is that several of you guys mentioned this is the whole notion of warmth and embrace and love. Many of us have had incredibly warm moments in front of a fireplace, in front of a fire, especially how many of you guys have done, as a youth pastor, I've spent more than a year of my life in a sleeping bag at all sorts of places like the Appalachian Trail and 20 countries. And I can tell you that there have been times when We were so cold, so unbelievably cold. And when somebody made a fire, it was the greatest thing that one could ever experience. This is the thing that I think we most miss about God. It's appropriate to fear God. And fire teaches us that. It's appropriate to explore God and to research God and to study God. And all of those things are good. But the lesson that I seem to struggle to learn and perhaps the most important lesson to learn related to God is that God pursues us with love. 
Uh, fire, in many ways, represents the presence of God as a lover. Um, I totally understand the enigma of fire, its mystery, its threat, and its comfort. But God reaches to us with an unquenchable love. Uh, as I read the text, God is an undaunted lover that seeks us out, warms us with grace, and an unfailing and an unmeasurable and an unmerited love. And in many ways, these covenants, these ceremonies, these moments that are forged around fire are at most a description of us being pursued by a loving God. How do we respond to fire? Fire, as I said, is a, it's truly an enigma, a strange duality of threat and of comfort, a mystery. And to me, as I think of fires, I've thought about this all week all long, perhaps the most significant response to fire in the world is prayer. Prayer is the way that we respond to mystery because we can't speak to it. We can't explain it. Prayer is the way that we respond to threat and fear and pain. And prayer is the way that we respond to comfort. And so in many of these instances, in many of these moments that we see in the scriptural text, fire is an impetus, not for explanation, not always for comfort, sometimes for comfort, but it is a space where we avidly receive the entreaties of a loving God. And in many ways, that is the essence of praying people, people who desire to be in deep communication with the one who loves us. So uh, let me lead, uh, at, at, look at the text today. I think we have a prayer in this. Is that correct? Did that make it in the bulletin? Um, I want to lead us in this prayer as a closing today. This is from Eliezer ben Kaller. Now an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire, a fire that devours fire, a fire that burns in things dry and moist, a fire that glows amid snow and ice, a fire that is like a crouching lion, a fire that reveals itself in many forms, a fire that is and never expires, a fire that shines and roars, a fire that blazes and sparkles, a fire that flies in a storm wind. A fire that burns without wind, without wood. A fire that renews itself every day. A fire that is not fanned by fire. A fire that billows like palm branches. A fire whose sparks are flashes of lightning. A fire black as a raven. A fire curled like the colors of the rainbows. Amen. This is a, oh, maybe more vocal too. How's that? Is that better? Maybe a little bit more. I don't want to blast you guys out, but. This is a song by uh, Counting Crows. Many of you know Adam Duritz, one of my favorite songwriters. Um, I'm more than happy to, to talk with you about what I think this song may be about, what I think it may mean. Uh, whether tonight or sometime over a cup of tea this week, uh, just let me know. But uh, 
many of his songs, I think, have elements of them that are open to interpretation, but especially when he uses images that I think are as rich and evocative as we see in this one, Colorblind. Flows on in endless 
Thanks so much, Tim and Mark. Um, so great to be back with all of you. Um, and even though I'm a little hoarse and tired, um, it's really great to be back. And so in preparation for today, I thought, um, I quickly realized uh, last night we had to drive to Winston because we have a cracked engine in one of our cars. So we had to go get another car. And I didn't get sleep last night that... 
doing an off-the-cuff table invite would be potentially dangerous um, for all of us, because who knows what I would say. Um, And so I was reminded of, um, as I often am, of Jan Richardson. She's a Methodist, ordained Methodist minister who's an artist and does a lot um, with poetry and scripture. And in a season in my life where I could not go to scripture and read scripture for comfort or inspiration, it was just solely through a critical lens. Um, Jane Richardson was a voice that allowed me to reclaim scripture um, in a way that was life-giving to me again. Um, And this blessing that she wrote for Pentecost, um, she wrote it four years ago, and it's one of my favorites. And as I was reading over it, she speaks of fire, and fire as the grace that scorches us. But as I was reading over it again this morning, I couldn't help but think um, how our table, though not physical fire, in many ways, week after week, is a grace um, that scorches us and transforms us. And so I'm going to read her words as our table invitation this evening. Here's one thing you must understand about this blessing it is not for you alone. It is stubborn about this. Do not even try to lay hold of it if you are by yourself thinking you can carry it on your own. To bear this blessing, you must first take yourself to a place where everyone does not look like you or think like you, a place where they do not believe precisely as you believe, where their thoughts and ideas and gestures are not exact echoes of your own. Bring your sorrow, bring your grief, bring your fear, bring your weariness, your pain, your disgust at how broken the world is, how fractured, how fragmented by its fighting, its wars, its hungers, its penchant for power, its ceaseless repetition of the history it refuses to rise above. I will not tell you this blessing will fix all that, But in the place where you have gathered, wait. Watch. Listen. Lay aside your inability to be surprised, your resistance to what you do not understand. See then to whether this blessing turns to flame on your tongue, sets you to speaking what you cannot fathom, or opens your ear to a language beyond your imagining that comes as a knowing in your bones, a clarity in your heart that tells you, this is the reason we were made, for this ache that finally opens us, for this struggle, this grace that scorches us toward one another and into the blazing day. So while we do not gather around a fire that captures our attention week after week, We gather around a table, and that table, I truly believe, is a grace that scorches us, that opens us for this struggle, for this world, for one another. So let us come to our open table where we will serve one another and say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Or if you prefer, you may say God's love for you and God's peace for you. 
And as we come, let's remember the power of fire and how that transforms our lives. Let us come to the table.